This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Welcome back. More than seven and a half million Ontarians have now received at least one shot of a COVID vaccine, which works out to roughly uh, 51% or so of the total population. Meanwhile, uh, over half a million have been fully immunized, receiving two shots. So let's now speak with Justin Bates of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Welcome, Justin. Good afternoon and happy Victoria Day. To you as well. Now, Ontario, as you know, the other day announcing its resuming use of the AstraZeneca, but only as a second dose. Uh, what role is our pharmacies playing in this? Well, we have uh, about 31,000 remaining doses that are set to expire by May 31st. So what we're doing right now is undertaking a uh, process whereby we are collecting all of those doses centralizing them, going through a a QA process, and then redistributing them to three of the regions that originally launched with the AstraZeneca program back in March. And that's where patients would have received that first dose between March 10th and March 19th, and will now be eligible uh, to go into the pharmacy to get an early second dose. Okay, so that'll take care of that 30-some-odd thousand or so, and then, of course, there's like another 250-some-odd thousand. This is off the top of my head uh, still to, to come in, I believe, to Ontario as far as AstraZeneca. So, uh, But again, at that point, those would also be potentially for only second doses, right? Yes, at this stage, uh, since we have undertaken the distribution an allocation of mRNA vaccines through the pharmacy channel. We have uh, close to 2,500 that will be offering that by the end of the month. We're earmarking all of the supply of AstraZeneca that's coming in to those that receive the first dose uh, and to complete that regimen uh, to make sure people are fully vaccinated. So people don't have to worry about, wait a minute, uh, no, I don't want that one. I haven't had anything yet. I want my first shot, but don't give me that one because it will only be the AstraZeneca for those who want a second dose of that one and not something else, right? Mind you, that's something that we're also waiting still to find out about mixing and matching. That's right. So we, we still have a supply challenge. As you mentioned, uh, we have about 256,000 that have entered into Ontario that will be allocated for those second doses, uh, many of whom will become due and scheduled uh, between mid-June and end of August. That'll be the goalposts of which we need to make sure there's enough supply. And of course, we've had over 900,000 Ontarians that have received a first dose. So if we're going to complete that regimen, we're going to need more AstraZeneca, or as you mentioned, the potential of mixing doses with an mRNA is still something that's under advisement. And it's not just the AstraZeneca, but as far as the pharmacies being involved with the rollout, uh, Moderna and Pfizer now part of the uh, campaign with you people, is that correct? That's right. We're in the process of rolling out. There's about uh, 1,600 pharmacies today that offer both of those. Um, And uh, we've done it in a way that uh, ensures that uh, there's accessibility and convenience to access those vaccines. And of course, we're running into some supply challenges with Moderna. So there's some delays there. And uh, Pfizer is the most uh, predictable supply of, of the three vaccines that are on the market. And considering at what point you sort of join this race against the uh, the virus, meaning uh, the pharmacists and the pharmacy association, are you pleased with uh, the way things are, are going in, in terms of your efforts? For sure. I mean, there's lots of lessons learned here. I think uh, just the challenge of supply, uh, having, uh, as a result, having to manage wait lists and bookings uh, of appointments for people. I know that's been a challenge across the board, Um, but certainly I think our members have stepped up and uh, really uh, met the challenge in terms of getting as many shots in arms as possible. Um, We're quickly mobilizing to make sure we don't waste any of the 
AstraZeneca doses. We have a very short window to do so, but um, you know, the more we can get supply into the hands of primary care physicians and pharmacy, this is a long-term solution. The mass immunization clinics will eventually wind down. And as we look at the prospect of having to need booster shots and things of that nature, we're going to need to have this channel fully maximized in order to uh, meet the demand in the future. Now, this is just anecdotes, stories I've heard. You might have heard uh, similar stories. Those who have received shots at uh, a pharmacy or pharmacies, I've heard more than one story, but not a lot of them, but a couple at least where I've heard they didn't receive any information about their call back for a second shot when they get their second shot, and they had a hard time trying to uh, obtain that information. Is this something that... Uh, yeah, you're aware of as well? Absolutely. The guidance was to book the second appointment uh, 16 weeks out. Some pharmacies were concerned about the supply and having to cancel appointments. So what they've chosen to do is they have a record of all of the individuals who have received a vaccination and when, uh, and they will be following up proactively once the supply is replenished for second doses. So, you know, we can reassure everyone that, Everybody will have an opportunity for a second dose once that supply arrives. And even in the case of this next week where we try to move those 31,000 doses, we'll be proactively reaching out to everybody that got the vaccination during that first week in March. And, uh, you know, what we're waiting for is the arrivals of that supply tomorrow afternoon um, and the exact number of doses that will be allocated to each pharmacy. But uh, we're going to work in partnership. We know Certainly people will call and, and walk in as well, and we'll be as accommodating as possible. Yeah, if anyone is concerned, as you say, uh, records are kept, so it's not like they they would have no idea. So for, for people to be worried that there would be no record, uh, how how is this all going to be done? I think you've maybe allayed some, some fears for, for those who are worried about uh, getting that second dose as quickly as possible. And as you say, supply, as it has throughout this pandemic, has been crucial and central to what steps come next? Yeah, I think supply has always been the rate-limiting step, um, but we're starting to see certainly uh, positive developments on that front. Um, and uh, eventually we're going to get through all of the first doses and second doses, and I, I suspect we'll start to see changes and adjustments made to the interval time as well, uh, because that was largely supply-dependent as well when they extended the time period between first and second dose. So lots of moving parts, um, but certainly, you know, we have the collective challenge of getting everyone that wants a vaccine vaccinated. Uh, pharmacy has been uh, an integral part of that rollout, as have uh, physicians, and uh, we're looking forward to continuing to roll this out. And in addition, of course, there mass immunization clinics in, in Toronto and other regions as well, the pop-up clinics, mobile clinics, everyone's trying to do as much as they can, as quickly as they can with what they have. Now, you, I guess one other thing that everyone seems to be waiting for as well, uh, the health community, and which includes the pharmacists, and that is the test, or I should say the results to come from that study in the UK about potentially uh, mixing the vaccines to have something different for the second dose, which could speed things along if uh, if that comes out to be uh, painted. Uh, you know, it's a rosy picture that's painted by the by the study. Absolutely. We're waiting for the updated uh, data uh, and that research study. There's already been some early findings, one that suggested there could actually be an improved immune response uh, with mixing uh, AstraZeneca with Pfizer. Um, but there's also been some cautionary notes uh, by others who have said that you know mild symptoms um, or side effects could also increase. So we need to make sure we have a thoughtful approach to this and follow the science. And much like uh, everything we've experienced during the pandemic, the science is evolving. So even looking at the intervals, um, there's now a suggestion that waiting could increase the efficacy of uh, that second dose. So no, I think that's just part of this whole process. And we're always very transparent about um, the data. And 
that's part of the reason for the initial pause of the first dose for AstraZeneca as well, because we started to look at an increase in instances, although still very low risk. Um, it, it was something that the chief medical officer wanted to have more information before proceeding. Okay, Justin Bates, CEO, Ontario Pharmacists Association. Thank you very much for your time and comments, and uh, happy Victoria Day to you and yours. Same to you. Thank you. Okay, that does it. Bob Comsick in for Libby Snymer, who will be back tomorrow. You're listening to Fight Back, as always, here weekdays between 12 and 1 here on Zoomer Radio AM 740, 96.7 FM downtown. Bob for Libby. Libby's back tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. And welcome back. Hope that you're having an enjoyable Victoria Day weekend. The weather is definitely cooperating. It's nice for a change when there's a long weekend where you can look forward forward to it, enjoy it instead of being indoors, looking out saying, boy, wouldn't it be nice if. The Ford government's introduced a three-step reopening plan set to take effect in the middle of June. Restrictions will lift based on vaccination rates and other health indicators with at least 21 days between each stage. What do you think? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. For starters, let's go to a regular contributor here with Libby on Fight Back. Dr. Tim Sly, epidemiologist, professor at Ryerson's School of Occupational and Public Health. Doctor, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Now, you've had a few days to let this marinate, as it were. Uh, What do you think? No question. It was something that we've been waiting for for a while. I mean, outdoors was always uh, a much better choice, you know, by orders of magnitude than indoors for almost anything you can think of. And so I'm really pleased to see that uh, people are encouraged to get outside in the fresh air. I mean, goodness, how would you want to miss that? The other good thing is that uh, we haven't seen that really before, is that incentive that's built in. You know, going from step to step, it's sort of regulated by uh, how well we're doing, uh, how, how the vaccines are going along, and, and the other indicators as well that are in there. In other words, it gives people a, a chance to work towards something in bite-sized bits. Now, with it being a holiday, no daily case counts. Today's will be released along with tomorrow's. Now, Saturday, the province reported uh, just under 1,800. Sunday, just under 1,700. Worried this holiday weekend might send the numbers in the opposite direction, or are you confident that this downward trend is going to continue? Well, Bob, starting back with uh, with a lot of stuff in the United States uh, back around this time last year, we began to see that whenever you get a gathering, whether it's a motorcycle club or whether it's a Mardi Gras or Mother's Day, you name it, about uh, seven to ten days afterwards begin to see the spike in cases. So, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it happens uh, within Canada around this time as well. But let's hope it doesn't. People are generally following this. I mean, we're all complaining. Everybody is complaining. We want to see the end of this. But we're generally following it. And as a result, as a result, all the indicators are coming down. Every one of them is slowly, cautiously coming down. But I'll tell you what's, what's the topic of conversation in back rooms, and that is the, 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 the variant known as the 1617, especially the number two version of that. That seems to, be, uh, seems to have the ability to, to transmit even much more rapidly than the 117, which, which really caused the third wave in Canada. And it, it, that, even that one moved up to about 89, 90% of the isolations in the United Kingdom. This one, this new one. That's the uh, one from India, just from so India, the... Yep, right. yep. Uh, this one has the ability to, to, to transmit much faster, possibly 40, 50%, even faster than the other. So it's a, it's a race against time. If we can get the vast population immune, uh, mainly through vaccination, then we're going to win it. If we slow down, start hesitating, then this other variant can take... Who wants a fourth wave? I mean, I didn't want to say that on your program. We don't want a fourth wave, but let's let's 
squash this third wave right at the bottom. Okay. I'm not sure if we're, uh, we, it, your line dropped a couple times there. Um, I think we'll be okay. Well, if not, we might get, uh, try to reconnect with you, but we'll try to continue here. Now, Ontario, Dr. Sly has announced that it's resuming use of the AstraZeneca, but only as a second dose. So starting this week, those who got their first between March 10th and 19th eligible for the second dose. As for those who got a first dose after the 19th, the province still finalizing plans for their second shot. So what do you make of the decision to uh, to resume AZ? Well, the decision really coming along and using it as a second dose. There seems to be uh, there seems to be all the all green lights for that one. There doesn't seem to be any reason to hold that back at all. Uh, it's still a, a, taking as a, a vaccine as it doing as it, it, the job that it's supposed to do. It is still a remarkably effective vaccine. Uh, and the f- more data that, that's gathered appears to reinforce that. There's no question. The hesitancy about the first dose and then stopping that for first doses, that seems to be reasonable because there was a small, very small still, in the, but it's still an increasing one that's on the horizon, a risk of uh, this particularly very, rare form of blood clots known as VITT. Uh, that doesn't uh, doesn't really uh, figure at all with a second dose. It's it's a very very s- small risk of anything like that. So it looks like it's a good the 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 original the not the original the data we've been waiting for from the Oxford team in Britain. Uh, that's being released slowly. We've had the first about a week ago to show that when you mix vaccines, uh, you get a slightly increased set of what we might call uncomfortableness, you know, the soreness in the arm, the feverish for a day or two. That extends a little more when you mix the vaccines, but no, not serious. Nobody went to hospital in the entire trial. Certainly none of the uh, the uh, blood clots are seen. And we're waiting now in about a week or a week and a half's time for the second bit, which is just how effective is it when you mix the vaccines. The early indication is that it might even be more effective, like like throwing a, a one kind of blanket on something and another blanket on the top. Well, the first one doesn't cover, the second one will, uh, that kind of a principle. Let's wait until the data are in for that. Now, as you know, late last week there, I think it was, what, Friday, New Brunswick reporting a second blood clot uh, death, Canada's fourth linked to, uh, to the AstraZeneca. Uh, you could for sure see why Canadians would be reluctant to even consider it, uh, you know, for a first. I mean, I know we're talking about Ontario resuming it for a second, but how people would be, they want no part of it. Despite what you're saying, they just want no part of the AZ. And that's completely understandable. I understand that and everybody else would. Uh, we are, as humans, are, are, are curious and we're always looking for that focal point. Uh, if, if there's a risk, no matter what, how size, what the size of the risk is, no matter how many zeros are attached to it, let's put it like that, uh, people will look at it and say, oh, there's a risk, it's only one in 100,000 or whatever the figure is, but that could be me. You know, you identify that to be me. And so the, the logic that follows that is, is pretty solid logic. If there's a risk, no matter how small the risk is, well, I would prefer, if I can, to uh, avoid the risk entirely. Of course, there's no, nobody can avoid every risk. There's no such thing as 100% risk-free in any form of life, whether it's driving to work or anything else. But I, but I can understand that. But remember that the original, uh, original Phase three trials, which were dealt with about 40,000 people in those trials, looking for this kind of thing, even they weren't big enough to find it. Uh, and they found it up in the range of, you know, per hundreds of thousands. And so the risk is vanishingly small. We've had people in the family who've had the vaccination with this, and, and they've done exactly the right thing at the right time. But in the abundance of caution, which is that phrase that irritates me a little bit, but it's true, uh, Ontario said, okay, no more for first dose. But for second dose, uh, it's up there with all... Don't forget that one of the, one of the side effects of, of the, having the virus itself is all kinds of blood clot conditions. So you're not, never going to escape that. 
whether you have the vaccine or not. And if, in fact, you look at the, at the, uh, at the chance of, of having the virus, I don't know whether you realize that if to be a confirmed case at some point in the last year and a half in, in Ontario, 3%, 3.5% roughly of people have encountered the virus. And about 5.7% have been infected and maybe not even known it. So it, it becomes a very large possibility of becoming infected with this virus, but a, a vanishingly small risk of developing this particular condition. But I, I do understand the, uh, the caution. Okay, we don't have an AZ question, but uh, Cheryl in Kingston has been extremely patient. Thank you. Cheryl, yours is Pfizer-related. Yes, um, I'll try and be quick. My son got his first Pfizer shot on this past Monday, like a week today. So by Tuesday night, he had developed a major outbreak of hives, major. So he took himself to emerge uh, to have it looked after, um, not realizing he knew it was hives, but anyway, they said it was definitely a reaction to the Pfizer shot. They gave him some prednisone and some stuff to put on it to take the itch away and told him he should not have the second vaccination. I read everything. This is the first time I've heard of a reaction to be the Pfizer shot would be hives. And the doctor said, if you think this is bad and this is bad, you have no idea what it could be like on the second shot. Don't get the second shot. So my question is, what do I believe? Where do I go with that? Where does he go with that? We also believe he had had COVID in February of 2020 took himself to the hospital, emerge in the middle of the night, was told they were not testing for COVID. He just had the flu and he should go home. So he did that. The truth is he had every single um, question they ask you, yeah, I do have this, he had every single symptom clue that it was Pfizer. Then he, after he felt better, uh, has a lingering cough, still has the cough, and uh, fatigue. So he says, Mom, I do two things. I feel like I've run a marathon. Hmm. So we don't know if he had some antibodies from that. We we don't know. And, and in Emerge, they don't seem to be interested. They don't care. They didn't say, oh, you know, you could have a serology test or come back in a month and tell us how you're doing. Nothing. And he doesn't have a family doctor. That's a problem. Cheryl, yeah. if... So they're, if- if I could uh, let you go here and then you can listen to what Absolutely. Dr. what Dr. Sly has to say in response. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay, go go ahead, doctor. Should point out, Bob, I'm uh, I'm not a medical doctor. Right. So, so Sharon certainly needs to uh, get hold of a, of a family doctor and, and sign on for that. That's really important because the medical advice here. I, I can't say anything about uh, the uh, the uh, original. Uh, uh, virus infection that he may or may not have had. But uh, just from the point of view of the epidemiology of it, um, there, there is a, there is, you, you can find people who, who can react to virtually anything. I've had people who react to nylon shirts, for example. And it is possible that, uh, that all of the vaccines, there will be some component in it that somebody somewhere will have a slight reaction to. I mean, we know about the reactions normally in a sore arm, and that's normal good reactions. But it is possible. I would, I would follow through with that, take the advice from the, uh, the, uh, the emergency department that he went to, uh, find, sign on to a medical doctor. Uh, that's, that's something that you really should have, and follow through with it. It is possible that it may be that, for example, if there's a component in it, for example, there's a, a thing called uh, polyethylene glycol, which is used in the vaccine. Uh, it, it's used as a, my goodness, it's used in med, very many medicines, including laxatives, by the shovelful, by the scoopful. But you will find there are vanishingly small people who are allergic to it. Then there will be possibly a decision made that he, he can take a, a second vaccine, a totally different one. We have the Johnson Johnson one coming out soon, and that might be an option. Or the Moderna, for example, that, that might be another option for him on the second dose through. But by all means, get close to medical advice and stick with it. There was a problem back last year with people wanting to have be tested. 
and epidemiology people saying we should be opening that up to everybody, no question about it. But the idea of only showing up if you have two or more symptoms on this list, that was wrong from the beginning. We should have been opening up. Okay. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Thank you for your time and your comments. It's my pleasure, Bob, anytime. Okay. Very good. Thank you. There you go, Dr. Tim Sly. Bob Comsick sitting in for Libby Zneimer on Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. And we'll check in with the pharmacy, the head of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, as we take a look at vaccinations here on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Bob Comsick. Happy Victoria Day. Well, Ontario's announced it's resuming use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, but only as a second dose. Justin Bates, head of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, will be by later. Also on the show, we'll talk about Ontario's three-step reopening plan with epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly and see if he's at all concerned about community spread as a result of this holiday weekend. But first, holiday or not, it's Monday, meaning the Zoomer squad's here, at least two-thirds of them. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media, CARP's Chief Membership Officer. Uh, Gentlemen, good afternoon. Hi, Bob. Hi, everyone. Hi, Bob. Hi there, Bill and David. Okay, let's begin with this, and I'll give a the one-liner, and then we'll flush this out a little bit and see where you two weigh in and where you do out there as well. The pandemic has eroded Canadians' trust in their governments, public health officials, science, even neighbors. That's the bottom line of a new Leger survey. Now, more than 60% say COVID had permanently eroded their trust in federal or their provincial government, either a little or a lot. Provincially, the mistrust was highest out west among those in Alberta at 47%, but Ontario up there too, 35%. Nearly half of Canadians' trust in Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Theresa Tam has fallen a little or a lot. Almost half had lost trust in their chief medical officers of health, depending on their uh, health units. Close to half have less trust in the health care system, while 30% say they trust their trust rather in science has also eroded. And one third had lost trust in their neighbors. What about you? Any of those resonate with you? 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-744-740. David, well, what about you? Any of those resonate with you? Well, they all do. There's no surprise here at all. I think the issue of trust, and we've, you know, we've been commenting on this for over a year here, it basically comes back to what do we have the right to expect, given what they know and what they're dealing with. I don't think distrust is a function of some utopian. Why didn't they get every single thing right? Why didn't they know more science than they knew at the time? Everybody understands this is unfolding. This is fast changing, especially the degree of knowledge is is increasing. So I think there's a lot of latitude before you get into the distrust uh, area. But that said, I think the the flip-flops, the bad communication, the contradictory decision-making, uh, it's really been a hot mess. And I think that the public health profession will probably have an agonizing reappraisal uh, when all this is over. Yeah, the, you mentioned the flip-flopping and the image that came to mind, appropriate or, or not. I could just see a fish literally out of water there after somebody's caught it, and it's just back and forth, and then you wonder whether to, to have or to uh, catch and release. Anyway, uh, Bill, what about your thoughts on uh, some of those things we touched upon there to start? Yeah, well, tr- trust, of course, is a very difficult uh, thing, and when you don't when you don't understand the communication, when the information you keep getting is different every time, of course you're going to uh, uh, lose trust or at least lose confidence in what you're hearing. And, and as David said, that's been uh, the, the problem. I think uh, our public health officials right across the country uh, need to take some more communication courses and understand uh, communication and 
you know, always giving every little detail each day and each change of, of science is not good communication. What people want is the big picture. They want to understand how it affects uh, them, and they want to know how, how it's going to be carried out in their particular community. And this has been totally between the, the uh, health officials and their communication and the disagreement they're having with governments, governments moving the opposite way to what often the health officials are uh, suggesting. Of course, there's going to be uh, uh, confusion. And when there's confusion, there's distrust. Now, I didn't mention this when I was doing the laundry list there, uh, the Leger Survey laundry list off the top, but a couple of the other aspects to this that you might want to comment on, and maybe you out there would care to as well, 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-744-740. So more than half feel that Ottawa's border measures have been ineffective, and we know that's also what Doug Ford thinks of here in Ontario. Almost three-quarters want the government's three-day mandatory hotel quarantine for air travelers extended to those who cross by land, and about six in ten say travelers ignoring the mandatory quarantine should face stiffer penalties, including time behind bars. Bill. Well, this is uh, this is really interesting. You know, it's almost a a NIMBY situation, and not in my backyard. It seems when when the rules personally affect people in their own expectations, they're less likely to want to follow them than when they see them as for the general good and for everybody else. And the case of of borders, as in some provinces, and the case of not being able to travel even to their own cottages and cottage country has has brought it close to home to them and they begin to see how they think they can get around the uh, the rules and still follow the general guidelines and protect protect themselves and it becomes very difficult to know whether they're distrusting what they're being told or they're trying to find a way around it so they personally don't have to follow the rules david well, I think that's completely true, but I also think that, um, you see, what are the rules? And when you're asking the public to do something, I'd like to split this topic into two. What did the government do in the areas that it had to do? So the government gives out vaccines, not you or I. The government restricts visits or, or not. The government treats people in hospitals. What did they do in, in dealing with this crisis? And then secondly, and more broadly, what did they ask the public to do? And I think that's where a lot of the distrust comes in, because what they were asking the public to do very rarely made any sense and was quickly uh, contradicted by other things. So early on in the in the pandemic, we weren't closing the borders because of all kinds of political um, issues, uh, racial issues, uh, discrimination issues. Uh, you know, as if the vac- the virus was going to pay any attention. So then all of a sudden, it became close the border. Then then, but let people in by car. Well, does COVID know? Uh, this is a guy coming in by car, I'll leave him alone. This is a guy coming in by air, I'll attack him. Similarly, when they went asked the public not to meet, go outside, it varied by uh, area and by province. Does COVID know that somebody, that a golfer lives in Nova Scotia versus another golfer living in Ontario? So the absurdities of some of these restrictions and the inconsistencies with which the public was being asked to do certain things I think that eroded, that that contributed to the uh, effect that we've talked about on this show before, that how much of this was just optics to make it look like they were trying to do stuff, and how much of it was really medically necessary. And they were so all over the map in what they were asking the public to do that I think that's where it, it spilled over. It became sort of toxic to the whole topic, and it spilled over perhaps into unfair criticisms also of the science. Is it possible that any of these, whether it's governments, public health officials, science, uh, can, I guess, get that trust back? Or, or well, and if so, sorry, go ahead, Bill. 
Go ahead. I was say there's 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 been a difficulty prior to COVID with uh, Canadians trusting the health system of the country because it's so different from province to province. So in in a case like this, when people are hearing different information from different uh, provinces, conflicting information around the across the country, uh, in, inequalities or uh, their uh, lack of similarities between what's being forced. Uh, and, and what's being uh, done in each province, they were already distrusting the health system and not happy the way it was being delivered across the country. And COVID, as in this case, as with many, has just exacerbated that uh, distrust and the, and the disappointment and the discouragement about poor, how poor our health delivery is compared province to province across the country. David, who is going to have the hardest time trying to win back trust? Well, I think there's two, broadly speaking, the there's two groups. I think the tougher job is going to be the public health officials and the public health community, because there's already a lot of uh, controversy. I don't want to say cynicism, but a lot of uh, a debate about every single government policy, not just COVID, not just health care. So the idea that people are suddenly going to have a childlike faith in their political leaders is is a dream, and you can pick any topic you want from the economy to taxes to foreign policy to the military, and you can pick any party you want, liberal, conservative, whoever's in power, there's always a lot of um, uh, public uh, skepticism about, about, you know, politicians. I think that the public health system, however, had a mantle of sort of uh, may, maybe not perfection, but, you know, scientific, a patina of scientific wisdom uh, that they were going to step up. They knew what to do. And it's been proven wrong. Some of it not their fault. Some of it very much uh, because of bad communications. And I think that is a profession that's going to have a lot of difficulty regaining its kind of aura of omniscience, and it's very serious that they lose that trust, and I think they're going to have to do some work to uh, say, what do we do the next time? What is our communications strategy the next time? And I want to make a radical suggestion here. I think when it comes to asking the public what they should do, there should be one national voice and not 10 provincial voices. Yeah, Uh, and (laughs) that is... uh... Again, a simple maybe solution, but to try to get there and try to come up with that, wow, that would no, take... I, I know, I, I realize it, but I think the public will accept that the number of vaccines that are available in Halifax is X and Toronto is Y, and we're doing it at this clinic or that clinic, the policy is different, the delivery is different, the addresses are different, fine. But what should I do to deal with COVID? There should be one national uh, answer and not fragmented into bit. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Go in, don't go in. Go out, play golf, don't play golf. It's it's just it's it's asking for trouble. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a head spinner for sure, Bill. I I, I certainly uh, agree, and uh, Canadians do want to have a. Uh, uh, an equality and equal av- uh, availability to healthcare and to healthcare advice across the, the country. We know that in CARP survey after survey is uh, telling us that. And now the government has to, uh, has to move on it. And it, at some point it has to happen. That's going to be a demand that uh, voters aren't going to uh, or let go. And the two groups, you know, that have really lost their I uh, lost the faith of, of Canadians. Really unfortunate is uh, is the uh, Ontario Health Advisory uh, Council, which has been arguing among itself and with uh, and with uh, government uh, and, uh, and and complicated uh, as as it is, uh, and and you know, understandable perhaps when there's a hundred members on that uh, on that council, they've certainly lost. The, the trust. And the other is NAFI, the National uh, Advisory Council on Immunization, uh, has also been flip-flopping back and forth on its recommendations. And that's a real concern to those of us who are not only looking at uh, COVID and COVID vaccines, but uh, the uh, flu vaccines and, and others. 
we've trusted uh, Nancy up to this point uh, to give good guidance to all the uh, provinces. And now their recommendations have, have been uh, uh, disrespected and, uh, and, uh, and a concern for, for, for some, uh, some time. And the public has, has lost uh, confidence in them. The, uh, the ongoing uh, uh, issue that this is going to provide, even after uh, COVID, is going to be uh, severe. And somehow we have to uh, make enough changes that the, the uh, public will gain confidence once again. And David's suggestion about a common uh, uh, message across the country, I think, is absolutely dead on. It's the only way to do it. Bill, David, let's hang on. Let's go to Melanie in Toronto. Melanie, welcome. Hi. Thank you guys for being there. At least I can trust in you being there and giving us great information. Um, to me, I put it this way. All the gods are tumbling down from Mount Olympus. I used to have the greatest, greatest trust in government and institutions. And over the years as a senior, I've to- it's totally been eroded. And the reason is my personal experiences of looking for accountability, and I didn't get it. But the truth, and I might still, but if you look at how these uh, things are um, put to the public, the biggest the biggest danger and the biggest, biggest problem they've created, people who can't agree one day they flip-flop from this to that, is that they're holding up conspiracy theories. So people who hear one thing one day from their government, from their institutions, they go, well, maybe I'll go to another source. Because if they're not united in their speech and they're not united in their directions, we, how, what are we supposed to do? Who do we trust? We say, well, maybe this is true. Maybe we should go there. I still believe science. I believe there are good people in institutions. The problem is that institutions are not held accountable. Nobody holds them accountable because everybody's intimidated. I have friends who are in government, and they're petrified to release anything to the media, anything to you guys, anything to anything, because they know so much, but they're petrified they'll lose their job, they can't feed their family. This is the problem. Institutions seem to be there to protect themselves, to set things up, get those that are in power with money, and no wonder it's lawyers that get into government. But you know what? I had a wonderful lawyer that helped me, and God bless the good, godly lawyers. But we have to start holding institutions accountable, and they are going to be held accountable without our money paying for their lawyers. So government institutions have 100,000 lawyers, millions of dollars, while the average citizen is struggling to pay their phone bill. Okay. Melanie, thank you so much, and we'll let uh, Bill and David weigh in. David. Well, I, I think uh, Melanie's completely correct, and I think the word accountability, um, let's, this is going to be a good test. And let me just give you one little nugget. In the Morocco Commission that we reported on a couple weeks ago, in his report, he talks about asking about the uh, plan to deal with an emergency. And there was a written document in the Ministry of Health that said, this is dating back four years. We need a plan because if an emergency comes along, of course, they didn't use the word pandemic. If an emergency comes along, our system is too fragmented, too fragmented, too siloed. We won't be able to cope adequately with an emergency. Put that in writing. And he asks the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, and the Deputy Minister, Helen Angus, why did you spend four years developing this point of view and this need, and then do nothing about it? No answer. Now, where's the accountability going to be for that? They knew this was coming, to their credit. They worried about this coming, to their credit. They laid out a plan, or a need at least, to deal with this before it happened. And nothing nothing happened. So is there accountability? Thus far, no. Everybody gets, as Melanie pointed out, everybody gets to keep their job. But I think this distrust that uh, we're talking about this morning, there's going to be an election in Ontario a year from now. Let's see what Ford promises on the campaign trail on the subject of accountability. Bill. Accountability is certainly an issue that CARP is going to push in upcoming elections, both the Ontario uh, provincial one next year and the soon to be called, but not sure when it's going to be yet, uh, federal uh, election. And David's absolutely uh, right. Unless governments follow through on their 
on their promises. For instance, uh, prior to uh, COVID, they said they had inspectors going into all the homes and checking and making recommendations. Now we find out that inspectors' recommendations were either being ignored or they weren't being enforced or being in, enforced with such a light hand that, that there was no follow-through with them. How is the public going to trust any kind of government regulation if they've seen in this disastrous case they weren't, uh, they weren't followed and not carried through on? All right, let's go to Al in uh, Toronto. Welcome, Al. Hi. Go ahead. I am uh, calling uh, over two months after my first dose. Me and my wife are seniors, over 80 years old. And since uh, I got the first shot, I was told that I will have to wait four months for the second dose. Now, I, st- I monitor very closely all the reports I got from various sources through the Internet, from NASI, from other institutions and other places in the world. So I know for sure that uh, from these reports, I concluded that there are different interpretations for different data um, around the world including in Canada, even between provinces. Exactly. Uh, I understand that, uh, according to the March report, um, it was a split of opinion in terms of... Uh, Al, sorry. How many months? How many months? We have? Right. Now, what I, what I was going to ask Al, if he's still there... Uh, Al, what uh, after you received your first dose, were you not given a- any paperwork indicating when you were yes, going? I, for- I got everything. Okay, well, when date when I have to have the second? All right, dose, and what was the July? And now I am after two months and a half, and uh, I'm getting worried. The reason is there are too many opinions about uh, the interpretation of the data people have. And I'm a little bit confused now. Who to believe? The people who believe in eight weeks? The people who believe in 16 weeks? I know. Uh, Ten weeks? Uh, I know. So I, was, I decided that I should try to find out exactly what Pfizer thinks. Because they have the scientists who did the research. They developed the Pfizer vaccine. They manufactured the Pfizer vaccine. They have a lot of uh, data about the results of the vaccinations. So what do they think on May 22nd today, or 23rd? What do they think, and do they have anything in writing in terms of this debate? It's a debate okay. between various sources regarding, I believe, okay. first. Al, we'll, uh, we'll thank you very much for your call, and I hope that gets uh, straightened out. But I, uh, I might see about, depending on where you did get your, your first uh, dose, I, I might see about trying to get back in touch with, uh, with them and then see if uh, they can in any way help you. But guys, uh, that is a story that is repeated across this province and across uh, this country. David? That's a good example, though. Two things out that are important. One, he's able to do research on the Internet right. from multiple sources which didn't exist at SARS or H1N1. And that's another factor eroding uh, public confidence is that there are alternative sources of information than the government. But second, their whole argument is disingenuous on the part of the government because the only reason to extend is they don't have enough vaccines. Do you think if they had... Uh, 10 times as many vaccines, they would suddenly be touting the merits of four months? No. They'd be doing 21 days, Al. 21 days is what Pfizer recommended. Now, I'm not saying that 10 weeks or 12 weeks is fatal. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's a reverse justification. It's not a justification based on research, you know, purely disinterested research. It's a justification because they haven't got enough vaccines. Okay, Jason in Mississauga, real quick before we'll be uh, changing some uh, some topics here and and guests. So, Jason, welcome. 
<laughs> thank you for having me. It's my first time calling. Um, Welcome. I wanted to. I just thank you. I just wanted to quickly say, in regards to your, what your speakers are saying and uh, the erosion of public health um, trust. trust in our institutions, um, this was a massive failure on behalf of the federal liberals and the provincial conservative government um, because this this was a national emergency that required a national response. But both were too far too concerned with scoring political points on each other, and that affected us, uh, us citizens. Uh, in terms of our health, our businesses, our families, and that was that was a massive failure. Um, this required a national response, um, and the federal liberals knew the provincial conservative governments would would screw up in regards that they would be um, short hands and deep pockets and wouldn't be willing to help out. And they figured they could score some points. And of course, we knew the conservatives themselves would not be willing out to dole out the cash to help people. So, what we have is we're coming to an election two elections coming up soon, and we can't be voting between two people who both failed us on a massive level. And that's kind of my point at this point. We can't be afraid. It's like, oh, we have to vote liberal because we're dealing about conservatives, um, and they're going to screw up again, so we have to vote for them. So we need to really have some soul-searching as, as citizens to see what happens, and this is a major issue. Jason, first-time caller, hope it's not the last, and uh, well put. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, let's wrap it up, the both of you. Uh, David Kravitz, first of all, and then Bill Van Gorder. I think uh, we can leave it on a high note of uh, what Jason said about the importance of a national voice and a national uh, strategy. The fragmentation of our hard enough with a federal provincial system, even if it's running smoothly, but then if it's not running smoothly and it's fragmented even further, I think that's why people don't trust the institutions, because they get too many mixed messages, and uh, hopefully uh, CARP can keep pushing, and I know Bill will want to talk about that, too, uh, to get that accountability that we badly need. Bill? Well, CARP certainly will be uh, pushing. The the uh, upcoming uh, elections are going to give us that uh, opportunity. There is no, uh, there is no easy answer, because uh, when it comes right down to it, the people that have lost most of the trust are bureaucrats and other officials, not the elected officials. So we need to elect people who are going to put the responsibility back where it belongs and make sure that bureaucrats stop trying to avoid uh, their conversations and the information we're talking about. Stop trying to do damage control and offer real leadership to the entire country. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media, and CARP's Chief Membership Officer. Thank you both. Thanks so much. Happy holiday, everyone. Bob Comsick sitting in for Libby Zneimer. You are listening to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio AM 740, also 96.7 FM downtown. And when we return, we will take a look at Ontario's gradual reopening plan. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.